Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we live in a world that has uh, challenges and difficulties every moment of every day. Um, we fight against spiritual enemies, and we come here on Sundays because you have risen from the dead and you have conquered all of our enemies. We come here on Sundays to be built up in our faith and to understand that faith better so that we might live in this world as you want us to. I pray that you would use this class to that end. I pray that you'd open the hearts of your people. Lord, that we would not leave here the same, that you would little by little, incrementally, make us more like yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. We're in 1 Corinthians 3, and we are in the uh, midst of an evaluation of preachers. And uh, Melissa Dunn mentioned last week, by he's talking about preachers, but really it, it can be applied to any laborer. Anybody that ever tries to be used by God. So, that, so on the one hand, he, there's these divisions in church. The people are making too much out of a particular leader. So Paul is trying to say that really the leaders are not, um, if, they're, if they're on the same page preaching Christ, then then they're really not competitors, they're not fighting against each other, they're working on the same team. And so he's trying to, to get the Corinthians to no longer uh, uh, formulate these alliances and try to divide the church, but rather to keep it as one. And his, one of his main points is that God creates life and causes growth. So no preacher has the ability to actually impart spiritual life to anybody that they have. It's always very humbling. It doesn't matter how good you are. God is the one who creates life, not you. Okay, And God often can use uh, instruments. Uh, we like to say sometimes among pastors, isn't it nice that God can make a straight line with a crooked stick? Right, He can do his work even with those of us who are imperfect, so it's a very good thing. Um, and so the, because of this point, we are only instruments, and we should not focus on the differences. All right, But then, being the person that he is, he's trying to cover this. He, he, he understands my point of ridgeline. He doesn't want them to fall off on the other edge. He doesn't want them to go th and say things like, well... Um, it really doesn't matter how a preacher does his ministry. He can, you know, good, bad, whatever, indifferent. It's all God. And you can see how you could fall into that trap as well in your own life. Am I a little loud? Turn me down just a little bit. Um, so uh, so he, he makes some counterbalancing statements. He, he basically says, you, the preacher, but I think can be the laborer, uh, a parent, uh, a friend, a discipler, you know, whoever, Sunday school teacher, you are the means by which another person is saved. That's how significant you are. Like he is, he could have chosen angels. He could have just done it, 
like a bolt of lightning and save people, but no, he's choosing people through which to actually save another person. So, so rather than like belittling how important you are, he says, oh, you're like the most important person in the world. And you get these promises in Corinthians, get to 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because a lot of times as a, as a minister or someone's a laborer, you get frustrated when it doesn't, you don't see the immediate fruitfulness of your labor, and so you're getting down, you're thinking, I'm, I'm a failure, whatever, all those kind of things. If you, if you care about ministering to people, you're going to feel those feelings because it's not always going to work out the way you want it to work out. So you're going to feel that, and he says, you're still the means by which someone is saved. So now we're at this point, he said there's no difference, but as a, as a uh, fruit of this, he says, your quality matters, and God actually gives rewards for your labor. Okay, so rather than coming to the conclusion, ah, doesn't matter, who cares, God's just going to do. No, you should be striving with every ounce of energy to do the very best that you can do. We all have our limitations. We all are imperfect. We, you can't become somebody else. You're not trying to compete with some other person. You're just trying to be quality with yourself. You're trying to work hard. He says your reward is according to your labor, not necessarily the fruitfulness, um, and, and that you are called to work hard. And he would even say that the work that you do is itself an, an act of God's grace to you. So you couldn't even take credit for that. It's something that he works in you. Um, but there is rewards according to it. Okay, so that's where we are. And we're right at verse 11. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, and it is the foundation, right? Uh, the foundation of the building is Christ. He, you can't lay any other foundation but Christ. He's the, he's the foundation. But you are building on that foundation. No one can lay any other foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved only as through fire. Okay, so... We're on this, this point of rewards. And the quality of your work in the Lord is going to be judged. It is going to be evaluated. Who's it going to be evaluated by? The Lord, right? It's going to be evaluated on the day meaning the day of God's final judgment. Okay? We're, and it's interesting in this passage, um, he's dealing about your labor, so when it comes to your salvation, he's assuming that you are trusting Christ alone for your salvation, right? 
Because what does he say here to you? Even if all your labors were burned up, what happens to you? You're saved, right? So he's making this case that your salvation is not based upon your uh, service in God's kingdom, okay? Otherwise, we'd have to, we'd have to kind of fall back on uh, the, um, and, you know, kind of rethink the whole Reformation, justification by faith alone, right? It's uh, justification by faith plus your service, you know, and that's not the case. So Paul doesn't want to fall on that. But in some mysterious way, there's still going to be this judgment. There's still going to be an evaluation. And, and you are going to have many of your labors burned up. Now, why would some of your labors be burned up? What are some? He doesn't explicitly say this. You kind of have to think about this. Okay, so, good. So, motivation is faulty. Now, you bring up an interesting point. She says 100% pure. Um, I'm going to tell you that I'm not sure that there's ever in my life been anything that I've ever done that has been 100% purely motivated. Right? I strive to love my wife with pure motivation. And then I look back and I'm like, nah, there's, there's mixture. There's, you know, anyway, so, so you do have this. Okay, so I strive to do ministry, to only care about the person and God's glory and those kind of things. But there is something to your motivation that will be judged. You could be doing it for your own self-glory. You could be doing it... Um, uh, to control or manipulate. You might be doing it because you do think that by this you somehow gain a better resurrection, that, that it is your, your works that somehow make you better than the person next to you and there could be pride in it, okay? Um, so motivation is a part of this judgment. How, how else might Jesus judge our labors? The waste quality? Yeah, so it, uh, explain, and, and you, don't, you don't have to do this, anybody can answer this, but explain for me, how would Christ determine quality? What, what sort of criteria to him would mean quality? Matthew 25, sheep and the goats. Okay, so what would you say on that, Benji? So that gets back to motivation, right? Right, so if, you, if your work is primarily selfish rather than selfless, that's a, that, this is a good example. I mean, Paul in other places says that there are people that are preaching Christ out of their own uh, selfish ambition. He says, man, I'm happy that they're preaching Christ, but they're clearly not doing it for a selfless motivation. Okay. So that, that's, a, that's a quality, right? I'll get back to you in a second. So, um, and this is something that we're constantly challenging ourselves to. And I, I would say part of this is, uh, is your 
this kind of still motivation. Um, yeah, so what you're doing is an, a true act of love. Is that what you're kind of getting at? That it's, that it's an act of love. It's very, it's very helpful to that person. It actually is beneficial to that person rather than to yourself or something else. Okay, good. All right, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so um, uh, you could say the amount of sacrifice. Um, certain things that you do are, are more of a sacrifice than other things that you do. You know, and I've often said that, you know, on your, on, or told myself, is it a greater work that I do if I really, really want to do it? Or is it a greater work if I don't really want to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway? Which one's greater? Because the one that the one is something, man, this just comes easy for me. This is what I love to do. The other is, ooh, this doesn't come easy. Am I still willing and able to do it? But in our day and age, we think that if you're doing the right thing, it should actually feel good all the time. But I think the greatest acts of love often are ones that don't feel good in the moment. And yet you still do them. Okay? Okay, so sacrifice. Think about the foundation. What's the foundation? Christ. So if you're going to build upon the foundation, how will you evaluate the work? That's right. Do are people knowing and there's a lot more I can say to that. Knowing Christ, trusting Christ, obeying Christ is is Christ central. Because if it's not, you might not actually be leading people in the right direction. You could get burned up. You're not you. Your your work is going to get burned up if it's not actually leading them to the source. Yeah, uh, knowing Christ, Christ, uh, Christ glorified. Um, this is one one good way to try to um, um, express this. Doctor Kick, he's now with the Lord, would always say, "Don't let the messenger get in the way of the message." another way of saying don't let you get in the way of christ right you want you want christ to be the focus if they forget you that's okay but they have to keep going to christ the result of your ministry is are they driven to christ if they're just driven to you that's not that's not good right and then um think about the ministry of the holy spirit a lot of times we get um we live in a day that the fastest growing religion in the world today is Pentecostalism, which focuses more on the Spirit than almost anything else. Okay, We are not saying, oh, let's jump on the bandwagon and do that. We're saying that the ministry of Christ was never, the ministry of the Spirit, excuse me, was never designed to get to, the Spirit never wants to be the focus of His work. He doesn't want people to focus on Him. It's like a spotlight that is fueling people to Christ. Uh, a spotlight on a, on a house. I always think of, the, I don't know why I think of the Thomas. A lot of people do this. But, but at the Thomas, are they broke right now? <laughs> but I would pull up and there'd be these little lights that you couldn't even see them, you know, and they would shine up on the house. That's what the Holy Spirit does. 
Um, and so this idea of our ministry should be that way as well, that people should see Christ. So, and so that Christ is glorified and not necessarily the ministry itself, right? Okay, so you're starting to see this, right? Starting to see um, that, that Christ does about he doesn't He doesn't just evaluate external things. I love 2 Samuel 16, 7, 1 Samuel 16, 7, where God says, um, the, uh, Samuel's, um, they're, they're looking at all the kids in, uh, I forget the dad's name, but, it, huh? Jesse's, all the, all the kids in Jesse's family, and, and, you know, David is like, not the best. And, and he says, well, God doesn't look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, right? So, so um, isn't it wonderful that you have a God who is going to look at every work that you have ever done? It's a little bit scary, but it's also good. I want you to tell me why it's good. He's going to look at every work that you've ever done, and he's going to just burn away everything that's dross. And the only thing that's going to be left are the works that his spirit has created in you to do. Right? That's what Ephesians 2.10 says, right? That I've created you for good works uh, that have been created in advance for you to walk in. So, so everything's going to get burned up except for those things that the spirit produces in you. Why is that a good thing? Okay, there should be a progression. Good. But why is it freeing as a laborer? It's not about me. Okay, that's good. Holy Spirit, those are all good things. Okay, I'm just going to lay it out here. Some of you have too high of an opinion of me. Some of you may have too low of an opinion of me. Does that make sense? And you know what? I don't want to spend eternity with you thinking you thinking more highly of me than you should. And I don't want to spend eternity with you, you thinking more lowly of me than you should. I want you to see, in the end, what the grace of God has produced in Mike Thompson. That's freeing. Right? So you, you, nobody's pretension. You think, well, I don't want all my works uh, shown for what they are. I do, because yours is going to be shown at the same time. We're all going to have things burned up. We're all going to, and, and it, there's not going to be this pride of, look, I got less things burned up than you. Because it's all going to be due to God's grace. We're going to see each other for who we are in Christ's grace. Period. And that's a beautiful thing. Carolyn. Yes, that's it. The ultimate eradication of pride. The ultimate, I don't do this very often, Carolyn. So we're not going to recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, think of it this way. Um, I don't know what your greatest work in this life is. You know, if you were to look at the woman that gave two pence, right, the two, you would have thought, ah, no big deal. 
Jesus looks at that work and says, that's the, nobody today has given more than she gave today, right? And so he's going to perfectly evaluate the work, and then he's going to get the glory for the work. And that's why it re- eradicates the pride. So, so that's what we want in glory. We don't want any pretense. We don't want people thinking more of us than they should or less of us than they should. That everything that's good in us will be the fruit of Christ working in us, and we will see it for what it is. And we will all love the body of Christ perfectly. And that's, that's what's so freeing about this. It's so awesome about this. Um, okay. In this passage, he says, gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. I don't think there's anything bad about wood, hay, and straw. It's just, it's not a material that's going to last like the precious ones. Now, even, even gold and silver and precious stones, if you got hot enough, you could burn them up too. Um, so it's, it's, that's not really the point. He's just saying that there's a, there's a quality that's going on and praise the Lord that he is going, God is, Jesus Christ is going to evaluate all that we are. Um, so what should you do? This is what I try to do. Almost at the end of my preparation for every sermon, people say, you ready for your sermon? That's a question I'm asked all the time. I said, well, I don't think sermons are finished. I don't think I came up with this. I think I read this somewhere and it made sense to me. They're just abandoned. At some point, anytime you do your ministry, you're going to feel like, I could have done that better. As soon as you do something, active ministry, you're going to think, I could have done that better. And you, and you can live in this, this constant like uncertainty of joy and peace in the ministry. And, and, but as you do ministry over time, you just have to say, okay, Lord, this is... All I can do is just what you've given me the grace to do today. And I just do it, and I trust that you're going to do it as you want, you know, and, and you'll do the work that you want to do in it, and the rewards will happen as you want. It's just me. I am who I am. That's it. And every day, then, I strive to do the best that I can in that work that I'm doing today. It's just the way it is. And people tell me also, oh, I can't do that. God's, you know, I'm, I'm just inadequate. We're usually saying, I, in my giftedness, am not good enough. And we need to get the focus off of that. You're just called to do what God wants you to do in that moment. And your giftedness and your ability to, to, to do better and better will change over time. Uh, and that's okay. Now, and then we lose the abilities. That's right. <laughs> as soon as we think we got them, we lose them. Yep, go ahead. Thanks, duty, love, and I'm going to put one in here that most Americans don't like to put in here. Reward. Does he not say here rewards? Does he not tell you that some of you will receive a reward according to your labor? Okay, so it's, these are all appropriate motivations. I would say that, that um, love is probably the highest motivation that you can have. It, it, I don't think you can get a higher love, a higher motivation than love itself. But I'm telling you that love often, in the moment, is worked out simply by you doing your duty. 
or looking for a reward. Now, here's the thing. We're always wanting a reward for anything that we do. Think about in the church when somebody's serving, serving, and nobody notices. Very few people care that nobody notices. Most people want to be noticed. It's not a bad thing to be noticed. But part of the reason why uh, many ministries are thankless is because God wants to help us to look to our eternal reward, the reward that he gives, rather than the temporal rewards that you get right now. So he's, he's purposely frustrating you. You do some, some wonderful work, and it just is like, nobody cares. People just trample all over the work that you just did. Whatever it is, right? We all do those work in the ministry, and we think we get upset at people because they don't do that, they're thankful to us, they don't respect what we've done, whatever. And, and God is, we don't often realize that God's saying, look, I want you to remember that anything you don't get a reward now, you have an eternal reward, because I will not miss one thing. And we laugh because John, John will often tell me, you're stealing my reward. Don't <laughs> I want the eternal reward. You're stealing it from me. Uh, but I don't think you could do that either. I think that, you know, if you, people are thankful, you should be happy. <laughs> you know, they, it's good. But all these are appropriate, appropriate motivations in, the, in, the, in serving in the church. Okay? Um, some days you don't feel that very thankful. Doesn't mean you shouldn't serve. You should still... Do it because it's your duty. Okay. Um, look at verses 16 and 17. Uh, let's see. Can we get a microphone down here? We'll let uh, Jim Pate read for us here. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Okay, you guys do not know the Greek here, so you can't see this, but the word you, is it singular or is it plural? It is plural. So when he says you are God's temple... What is he saying? The church, the Corinthian baptized people. Okay. <laughs> it does. It means y'all. In fact, it's the, it's the, the only southern word that, that should come into the proper English language, right? Uh, it really, Ewan's. You guys, y'all is just good. It really should be a part of everybody's lingo. Um, so, but it's, and you're understanding here, Paul is talking to a visible people. There's a line of demarcation between those who are the temple and those who are not. And the only, the entrance into being a member of this temple, the outward entrance is baptism. Okay. If you've been baptized, you're a member of the church, unless you've been excommunicated. Does that make sense? So when he says, you are that temple, it's not a denial 
that there will be an Jesus during the day of the sheep and the goats kicking some people out of the, the temple. You, know, <laughs> you are not true members of the temple. But as long as, as it is this time, before that final day, people are, who have been baptized are in the temple that's being built. This is so important because otherwise we're constantly evaluating, oh, so-and-so just committed a sin. I don't think he's in the temple. We're constantly judging people. Now, there's a place for outright rejection, and that's why there's church discipline and those kind of things. But we should be looking at the people who are members of faith church, baptized into the name of Christ, members of this church who are in the church. They're the temple. What I, we make the distinction between the invisible people of God and the visible people of God. Invisible are those who are truly saved. Visible are those who are in the visible church. Paul is speaking to the visible church and he says, you are God's temple. And I think that's so important for us. Because I may not like Mary Dunn. She just hurt me really bad. She knows how much I like her, so I'm, that's why I'm using her. But I, I may not like her. And, and, and you know what? I'm not even sure she's a Christian. Okay? When you start having that attitude, you then justify within the church a division. I like these people over here, but I don't like these people over here. And that division is what Paul's getting at. He's saying, you are God's temple. As soon as I start treating Mary like she's not a part of God's temple, you are destroying the temple of God. That's his point. What will happen if your purpose is to destroy the te- other people who are members of the temple of God? What does it say? Whew. Now, we were just talking about labors, some getting burned up, doesn't matter, you're in Christ, great. You make it a practice to destroy God's temple, that is, there's probably no other action that is more indicative that you truly don't belong to Christ than that you're willing to destroy his people. Cut them down. And you think about how critical Christians are of other Christians in the church today. Now, I'm not saying you can't ever recognize a church that has gone apostate. Paul does that. I'm I'm not saying you can't ever confront sin in another member of the church. Of course you can do that. But you better be certain that you are treating people as if they are part of what God is doing, redeeming them making them part of his temple. We just don't have a we don't have a healthy robust understanding of the visible church today. And that's why people they see Christians destroying the church and they just jump on, do the same thing. We shouldn't want to do this. Um <clears throat> notice notice at the end of verse 17 Paul, in a sense, speaks out of both sides of his mouth. He is telling them that by their divisions, by their linking onto one person, they are beginning to destroy the temple of God. And yet he still says, you are holy, you are part of that temple. You see how unwilling, even when he's confronting sin in another member of the body, he is unwilling to just jump on the bandwagon and just cast them out like that. Very rarely. He'll do this in another chapter of somebody who's in open, blatant, unrepentant sexual sin 
He'll tell them that they need to hand them over to Satan. But that is a very rare thing that he wants to do. So we are a church that does church discipline, but boy, we, we don't want to do church discipline if we can help it, right? So, because we don't want to destroy people who are in the uh, part of God's temple. <clears throat> Think about your ministry. How often do you remind another person in the church that they are a part of God's holy temple? The world looks at people in the church and the church itself and absolutely has no value on her. The world thinks the church is the most insignificant institution in the world, except to beat her up. And, but you should believe that the church matters more than anything else because it matters to God. <clears throat> Questions or comments on that before we kind of move on? Because he's, he, he's hitting here, this is his like down in the root system. He sees this problem of divisions in the church and this is what's really the root system. This is the theology that matters to him. And I, I have often, uh, you know, as pastors, we're, we can be jealous and envy and all that kind of stuff of other pastors. You hear of somebody else's, oh, God's doing a great work over there. And immediately you have this cringe of, is he, is he doing that work here? Is, you know, what about me? You know, and.
Well, that almost sounds important. Like a Here's a, a preacher who is a, a laborer. Uh, I am an under rower. In the one sense, I'm nothing. In another sense, I'm an assistant to the king. And that's the way you should think of yourself. There's dignity to what you're doing. You are, you are imparting the mysteries of God. Not like these secret hidden mysteries that n- still are no longer known and you're just really, really good at bringing them out. No, the mystery has been revealed in Christ. And therefore you are presenting the revealed mystery, which is Christ to people. That's what you are. You're a steward of that. Often we say that, you know, we don't make the mail, we just deliver it. Right? Uh, if you don't like what the preacher's preaching, if he's not preaching Christ, you guys can have a problem with it. But if he's, if he's preaching Christ and, and expositing the truth that God has laid out in Scripture, then um, we don't get to say whatever we want. We have to take what the message is there. Verses 2 through 4. Laura Vesey, would you read that and give her the microphone? Here it comes. Now, this is where this is where it just kind of gets really fun, right? This is Paul just just laying it out. So he says. um, It is required of stewards to be faithful. Trustworthy with what God has given. That's what we're called to do. That's we talked about those things that God judges your works. Well, at the top of the list, we could say is faithfulness. Uh, what has God called you to do? I'm trying to be faithful with what he's given me to do. Um, I, I kind of um, used Mary as a bad example. Uh, for years, God called Mary to, to try to go help take care of her mom. Right? So she's being faithful to what God has given her to do in her particular situation. That's, what, that's faithfulness, right? You have a master Everybody's life is a little bit different. Mike Starnes, your life is, your situation is a little bit different. doesn't quite look like Mary's, but you're called to be faithful. And that's what Christ wants you to do in this situation, right? And then he says, this is, the, this is a requirement on the day of judgment. God's going to judge me whether I'm faithful or not, da 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 okay? And then he says in verse 3, what does he say? You put it in your own words. Yeah, he he says he says it, it's it's he doesn't say it's no importance. Well, he says it is a it is a tiny little thing. You know, it, it Jim, it matters to me what you think of me, but really small. I mean, hope I mean that's that's what Paul's saying. You know, what I mean, it's like it's not putting like everything in the world depends on what Jim thinks of me. What matters is what God thinks of me. 
and being faithful to what he's called me to do. Well, that's the next step. He says, he says I, the opinion of others is really small. And he says, I don't even trust my own opinion. Now, this gets back to why it's so freeing. How many of you have a very, very low opinion of yourselves? I would guess most of the women probably do. Sometimes men can have exalted opinions of themselves. <laughs> it's very false. But, but, I, but I talk to people and they struggle. I just I think I'm worthless. I don't think I have value. I know my weaknesses. I know my sin. I know these things. And so I'm evaluating myself, evaluating myself. Clark, what does Dr. Kelly say? He says, you can go ahead evaluating yourself. We already were told to do self-examination. But what do you do in the end? You finish with Christ. In the end, you just say, I abandon all evaluations of myself, and I say, Christ, you're going to evaluate me, and I'm not going to spend so much time evaluating every little detail all the time to its nth degree. I'm just going to trust in Christ and get on with the business of serving. Because even my own evaluation of myself is no better than anybody else's evaluation of yourself. Can you honestly say that you know exactly what Christ is doing in your heart? How often do we focus on all the, 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 place that, the cup being half empty, and we look at all the places that we're not, and we're not really seeing what it is Christ is actually doing in our heart to change you? You're not seeing that. Christ is. He knows what he's doing in you. I do not even judge myself. He examines himself, but he doesn't make the final judgment on himself. My story's not over. I don't know all that God is doing. I will trust in Christ's evaluation. Morris writes, often people think that they know exactly what their spiritual state is and just what their service for the Lord has affected. The result may depress beyond reason or exalt beyond measure. Neither is relevant. It is not the task of the servant to pass such judgment, but rather to get on with the job of serving the Lord. That is well said. I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, back in high school, um, yeah, I'm a I'm a junior in high school, young Christian, um, and we we had this hated rivalry on in this in our league, and um, they they were, in our opinion, they were so arrogant. Um, we just, you know, we didn't know any of them. <laughs> but in our opinion, we thought they were arrogant. And I can tell you, uh, I, very few of our games were ever recorded on TV. We were a small country team. But this was like the one game that was recorded. And I have one of the, the best games in my career. I have this great game. We win triple overtime. 
you know, I scored tons of points, which I'm not a great scorer anyway. I like the full game's great, but I just had a great game. And the whole game, I am telling myself, those guys are arrogant. Those guys are arrogant. And it just so happens that they want to do an interview with me after the game. And so we have this. We have, I have this tape at my house. It's getting worn out. You know, it embarrasses me every time I watch this interview. Because at the very moment that I am accusing them of arrogance, all that's coming out of me is arrogance. And I just thought, oh, it's so embarrassing. So embarrassing. Um, and so, you know, sometimes we have great views of ourselves. Sometimes we have bad views of ourselves. <clears throat> and I'll end with this. For today, you may or may not have watched Saving Private Ryan, old movie. If you haven't, I'm not encouraging you to watch it. It's a lot of blood and guts and terrible stuff. But anyway, the basic gist is that that there is they're going this this one family has lost like three brothers in one day, and they're going to go save this one brother. And they, they send this platoon to go save them, this company, only like 12 people or 10 people or something, and they're getting picked off while they're going behind lines to try to get this paratrooper out. And the story kind of flashes back and forth between the, you know, the wartime and then the present day, because he's an old man, and he's actually going to Normandy and actually is thinking about his life. And the best part of the movie is the very end. He's weeping. And he looks at, like, I don't know if it's his son or his daughter, and he's, some, he's just like, have I lived a good life? Because he knew that people had died so that he could live. These people came in, and they, they actually died so that he could live. And so he's looking at his life, and he's just thinking, I haven't been good enough. Right? So I gave you the example of overinflating value of myself, but then sometimes you look at yourself and you think, there's no good. My life's been worthless. What did I do? And, and of course, his, his, I can't remember if it's his wife or his kid or someone just says, you've been a good husband, a good dad. You know, you've, and so it's, it's very emotional. It's very uh, powerful. And it's very, I think, uh, God-honoring in that way. Um, but it just.